0: UX Podcast Episode
1: 114 Hello and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. And today we have an interview for you, yes, we are talking to Andy Goodman and we 're talking about zero u i yeah and we 've actually we 've discussed this um a little bit earlier on back in episode one hundred and three.
2: yeah, I remember us arguing about it, and what it really <laughs> means does zero u i imply that we take away all interfaces
1: we actually I think we actually fell for um, andy's provocation in the in the talk that was covered in the article that we featured in that link show uh, i ep- think so yeah because episode 103 was a link show and and we the second article in that show was um was um, an article that john brownley had written for fast company i think fast company design um which was covering andy goodman's talk at san francisco's um solid solid conference Um, And At first, I didn't realise it was John writing this as a cover of the talk It was only halfway down the article, I kind of tweaked it It was was Andy's talk and Andy wasn't involved in the article We caught up with him um, a few weeks ago Because we were so interested by the topic of Zero zero UI And we got quite a lot of feedback from that chat we had uh, back in July um, About Zero UI And and I really wanted to talk to him more about... um, uh, his ideas and 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 some of the issues around the concept of zero UI because we were quite I mean I was quite negative towards the idea. Yeah, in, yeah, you know. I remember that. <laughs> I, mean, I was yeah very negative about the fact that I mean, yeah, it's nonsense, doesn't exist. <laughs> so there. So um, we um, we can have a little bit more uh, reflective look about the concept now with Andy.
2: Yes, Uh, but just before we dive into the show with Andy, we want to mention that we have a listener phone-in coming up on the 11th of December, which is a Friday. And joining us on that show will be our new listener phone-in co-host, Danway Tron Luciani, which will be really, really great. And if you don't know what a listener phone-in is, it's a UX podcast live streaming show where we allow you to call in and talk directly to us about your thoughts and questions this time around the theme of uh, the demise of ux and the live stream will then be edited down into a regular episode
1: yeah you can actually find out a little bit more information by visiting uxpodcastcom live which is also the link you visit when we're live Right, so go straight into your calendar and mark down
2: UX Podcast Live for the 11th of December. Let's, let's start off with uh, you, Andy, just telling us a bit about uh, who you are and what you work with. Uh, tell us a bit more about your background.
0: Yeah, I I'm, mean, I'm well, yeah, I started my career as an in- interaction designer before it was called interaction design. I can't even rem- remember what it was called. Um, actually, because um, it was about 1994, um, mm. I think I think we were called Information Architects. I can't remember exactly, but anyway, it was it was. Um, uh, so so I've always had UX and interaction design as my, you know, my main, the main thing that I would think about um, in my work. Uh, and, and over the years, it, it, um, as the field grew and as the scope of what we were trying to do grew beyond just designing websites, um, it seemed to multiply the, both the complexity of what you're trying to do and the challenge and scope of what you're trying to achieve because you're now moving away from this very controllable, although pretty primitive environment back then, but it was, still, it was pretty controllable in terms of, of what someone was looking at and, and what they were trying to do to becoming more and more multi-dimensional and complex yeah. um, and having to take into account a lot more ideas around human behavior and motivation and, and, and things, um, and, and emotion and all kinds of weird things like that. So, so, um, so I think as a summary, I think that probably defines what has happened to the whole industry and, and yeah. for me, The the zero UI thing is really just a continuation of that into more dimensions, more more complexity, um, and um, and actually a need to 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 re you know to constantly reevaluate and rethink how we design systems. Mm. Um, So so in you know my my career trajectory took me from interaction design, um, working on product um, as well in in, in, uh, for for interactive TV in the games industry for a while, and, and then um, ultimately moving into service design, which, which really was a discipline that seemed to pull together a lot of these strands. It was something that intrigued me a lot because it was about thinking of uh, systems in a holistic way rather than as a platform or as a solution for uh, you know an app or a, or a website. It was more about how do we as humans Interact with entire systems because this is what we do. We, we we create these constellations of things around us, and and we don't kind of think of them as separate. They're all part of a ongoing dialogue we have with other people, and with and with companies, and and with um, technology. Mm.
2: So when we when we say zero UI, when we say zero UI, uh, it seems that we're talking about moving away from screen interfaces, but we're moving towards other types of interfaces where you're interacting with gestures or with uh, voice or uh, whatever you could think of that's not the screen.
0: Yes. Yeah. Essentially, it's a misnomer. <laughs> yeah. And it's a deliberate misnomer. Yeah. Because... because mm. uh, and people are picked up on this. And, and people get else. very annoyed by this. They're saying, oh, of course there's a UI. There's a user interface. Yeah. It just isn't. And, and yes, um, it's just... Um, calling it something like invisible interfaces or intangible interfaces or whatever just sounded a bit too boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wanted something snappy um, and, <laughs> and something that would provoke people because, because really, um, as designers, we spend a lot of time thinking about the way things look and not much time thinking about anything else. and And it's kind of inevitable because of the way that, platforms have always been, and the way that we've interfaced with computers throughout their entire history, and also the way that we interact with the world generally, is, is we are primarily visual creatures. And so the visual becomes very important, and we sometimes um, forget how important all those other senses are in, in conveying an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are, they're, they're tied to very important parts of our memory and identity. so. Um, if we can somehow think of this analog in, in, a, in a computer um, context of, of how we can make use of those other senses, we could actually start creating interactions that become more more intuitive, more pleasurable, um, more subtle, um, less kind of work for us, less less cognitive load because really that's the, my, my objective, um, I, I suppose, um, or, or my, my vision um, or hope is that we can actually have, spend less time fiddling around with computers, achieving, achieve the same outcomes, but have to spend less time poking around with them and more time enjoying the stuff that they provide for us and the communications that they enable and so on
1: i think that's 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 a really good point because i 've reflected i mean i i'm the person in my family of course who's been the kind of gadget guy since the you know the late seventies, early eighties, probably early eighties, and it's always been me the one that learns how to use stuff and explains to everything else and acts as the support person, and that still happens now. And I'm finding that it, it it sucks up an awful lot of time, you know, working out why things are like they are, you know, dealing with all these interfaces in all these devices, not just for myself. And I'd love to be able to sit back and enjoy technology a little bit more, kind of like how I think I remember enjoying technology at one point, whereas it was now I seem to be in a constant battle of it. Um, but um, um the the because the interfaces, even the things that, if we think about, oh, maybe for me it was like internet routers. That was one of the times when you first had these. You, know, you logged in via a web page to an internet router, so the the router itself had no no UI. Um, but you just moved it somewhere else, and that that trend has just uh, you know accelerated as as we've we've all got our own little own smartphones. So we've we've gone to. I guess I mean if I want to use a short snappy phrase for it, I'd call it hub UI rather than zero UI. The the your smartphones become a central hub for controlling the UIs of several things. I mean, I I think my phone I control I can control my TV through it, um, an amplifier through it. I can I, I have a Chromecast of course, so I can do all kinds of things with that. I mean, YouTube now goes then to the Chromecast to the TV. So so everything is like falling back. It's it's like um, rolling back into the telephone UI So things that. Like, you would see maybe as having not really any controls or buttons. They have loads of them inside. Yeah, so you're your spending
2: more, time, more and more time with your telephone still, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And making sure that everything works on that. And it's a very important
0: tool now. I, I think that, that is the problem, is that it's almost become, um, rather than machines serving us, it feels sometimes like we're serving them. That... The, because the Mm. systems haven't been designed well enough, that we're constantly having to kind of feed them and keep them warm, and keep them powered. And, mm. and it's a really bizarre... It's not, like, you know, it's not like Terminator has come to take us over. It's the fact that our battery life on our phone isn't good enough. That's what's taken over. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not Skynet that's yeah. the problem. It's the lithium battery in our phones. And who would have thought such a banal thing... The
1: biggest was, problem of our modern age. Yeah. yeah.
0: Who would have thought that such a banal thing would become mm. such a major... Factor in our lives, you know. Where can I get power? You know, we're we we're we are their 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 sort of shepherds, or their their, their kind of um, their, their transportation and their power and everything. So, which is which is a weird thought, but I, and I think the thing that that um, just to wind back a bit into what interaction design was there to solve initially, it was it was there to solve um, you know um, the problems of Us understanding how a computer worked or a machine worked, and provide an interface to to operate it. And I remember back, you know, way before I was in work, I I knew I was going to be something around that because I was the only one that could program the VCR, Mm. (laughs) or the only one that took an interest in setting and programming the VCR. And then I would think this is really bad, the way that this works, and why can't it be easier, <laughs> you know? And, and that, was the, um, that was the motivation. And I, I think that some of those purely functional types of UI, or a lot of those purely functional type of UI problems have been solved now through patterns, or through, um, you know, um, like the default ways of doing things are pretty good now. So very, for, for simple kind of interface problems. You can go and design a whole load of different ones, but they're probably not going to be as good and will make people have to learn new things. Um, And and those aren't really... Those are the aspects, I think, that can be automated and and relegated to the background. But there's a whole load of more complex things we're trying to do now, um, uh, which which are really quite hard problems to solve. Um, So let's say understanding... um, you know, understanding what data is providing for us. What you know, the, the whole buzz around big data. You know, we, we have access to huge amounts of stuff now. Content has actually become almost more of a problem than a solution for us um, because there's too much of it in in all different forms. Um, in terms of um, you know, websites and blogs and, and newspaper articles and and online magazines, and, and then if we layer on all the other kinds of data that we um, kind of use in our daily lives, um, the interfaces for, for interrogating that are really not good enough anymore. And I think um, there's all kinds of automated things that, that can, are starting to be done but, and can be done mm. that can help us through that, which which all can can make consumption a lot easier. But they certainly have problems associated with them, such as the the idea of the filter bubble, where once you are a certain type, then that's all the stuff you're going to get. Is the stuff that conforms to your model of reality or or to your likes, Um, which which really is a shame, because it takes away serendipity, and it takes away the idea that you can um, learn something from a source that isn't one that you'd normally look at, and all those things that we used to do just by... Randomly stumbling upon things, which the the um, the chances for doing that now bizarrely seem to be less because there's too much too much kind of ordering and structuring of content. Um, so I think that, that
1: exactly. I think the same. Sorry, I was thinking the same thing. So Spotify are doing an excellent job now. I think with their there's a Discover Weekly playlist that they generate automatically, um, and I was really worried about using that playlist at first. And I actually reached out to Spotify and, and asked, right, if I play this playlist, you're not going to count this towards generating the playlist, are you? Because I was I was worried that I was going to f- quickly fall into some kind of like never-ending circle and just end up with one track on the playlist that just got f- served to me every single week. But they don't include the the plays from the playlist in the generation of the playlist. So that was good. But I still it still has the long-term issue that if I if they're doing a really good job at feeding me inspiration through this Discover playlist then I'll start listening to them outside of the playlist. So eventually it will become a filter bubble. Yeah. So we're we're limited by the, the we're limited by the, the algorithms.
0: We are and, and also paralyzed by choice. Because once yeah. Yeah. everything is accessible and kind of equivalent, then nothing is special anymore. And I've I've realized and maybe it's just me getting older. <laughs> but i've realized that that, that <laughs> i'm no longer excited anymore to find something new really uh, particularly in music let's say because it's all so easy mm. to access there's no there's no sort of disco- there's no real discovery anymore there's no like magical moment where you find this no. um you know Album in a in a dusty old record shop that you've been looking for for like ten years. That just doesn't happen anymore. Oh, and don't,
1: Andy, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna start to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I, the, nost- the nostalgia is gonna get too much. Yeah, like, oh.
0: I, I know, and, and I think that's happening with all kinds of content. And I think that we, yeah, I'm not sure whether this is, you know, it's very hard to say whether this is, oh, on balance, a good thing or a bad thing. Because what the great thing about it causes that. You do have access to everything, so really, whatever your tastes are, they can be catered for. Um, and we all know that saying about whatever your perversion is, there's there's an internet site about it. But um, well, but, but um, you know, I think that that um, uh, but but the the um, but but the trouble is then it's devalued everything, and we look at what it's done to um lots of industries is the you know content has become extremely um valueless now and it has become increasingly problematic of how you do it so i think you know going back to zero ui how how we can use these automated systems to almost be a proxy for us in a way that would be the ultimate where it's not just i'm um one of like a million other people that are like me just because I happen to like, I don't know, The Smiths or something. But I want it to get to the point where it knows me so intimately that it's, it could be my proxy. So, um, some, you know, where, where the ch- a tuning is so good. I mean, there's no, there's no wonder that Netflix had that competition a while back to improve their algorithm by 1%. They were giving away a million-dollar mm. prize because they have totally got it. They totally understood that the, the recommendations... Are generally too broad, too vague. They don't actually understand you at all. They're just kind of putting you into a category, matching you to other people that are like you. But that isn't really how human beings work. And I think until computer systems can really kind of get an, a, a proper kind of breakdown of what our tastes are to a really fine degree, I don't think these these th- these problems can be solved. Um, so, so um, one of the issues we, we're going to face with these. Um, so we have automation. We have this kind of intangible um, interface where where um, your gestures, your voice, your um, even your thoughts maybe could could all contribute to a, um, some kind of interaction. And I think that. They they all in isolation won't work. You know, if you take any of them in isolation, they won't work. Because they're they're too um, they're they're too kind of loose. <clears throat> so if you think about how gestures can be interpreted, it's really, really hard to, to get something proper out of it. The the only places where they've really worked are in, in games consoles because there you have an extremely um, fixed set of things that you can do. So, in, more or less, it's an a- analogue to your body. So, with the, um, you know, e- um, Xbox, um, it was literally tracking your the movement of your arms and legs, and that corresponded to what your avatar on screen was doing. So, yeah. so that's, that's easy to understand how that works. But if you then try and think of it where there's some other kind of analogy, not just your body, how how do you learn how to interact with that, it's really tough.
1: I think also another thing, though, with game, just with gaming and and um, like Xbox and and so on, the interactions there is you've got a you've got people at the other end who are very committed to making the machine understand. Because gamers gamers are very willing um, to put to invest huge amounts of time into making you know making the controls work, um, whether it's whether it's a, a, a Magic Eye or whether it's a keyboard or stuff. There's some very complex interactions that you you're prepared to to get along with, whereas in in more regular situations. No, we're, we're, our patience really doesn't last that far. You also have to no, think about no, not
0: gestures not
2: being no. gestures. You could make gestures by mistake, and you may trigger stuff that you didn't want to trigger. So there's that. The thing with gestures is that it's really hard to make them similar across generations and across how people do move regularly around their house. Perhaps if that's that's where you're putting the interfaces. When when I read that uh, you had talked about <laughs> uh, like television interfaces, uh, I thought that my coffee table that would be. Where I would want the interface because I, I won't lose my coffee table, uh, which I do with my remote control. <laughs> yeah. But if I tap or I make a counterclockwise circle with my finger on my coffee table, that would be like uh, turning the sound down, a sound level down, or something like that. So that's where I want to yeah. put the interfaces yeah. into the other stuff in my home.
0: Yeah, and, and, that, and that hits upon a very important thing, which is our metaphors mm-hmm. might be completely different mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. between cultures, between age groups, between individuals. Um, So then what we're saying is it kind of has to learn your gesture. Again, it's going back to this idea that it needs to understand you. There needs to be some learning, some machine learning component Mm -hmm. there. Um, So it kind of becomes... And and there are lots of examples of this in sci-fi, for instance. Um, Neil Stevenson wrote extensively about it, um, particularly in the Diamond Age, where um, advanced technology becomes like a companion to you where it starts learning about you and providing you with what you need um, and then the interface just disappears eventually because it's more, it's more or less like a, um, a you know like a, a small sentient thing that goes around with you um, yeah. which, which I think you know we're, we're heading towards that we're definitely heading towards it I don't know when we're going to get there but um, there are some steps along the way
2: I'm guessing Google Google Now is an example that, of it. I mean, Google Now can see or predict what type of searches I'm going to do, or it knows that I, I usually shop there, so it tells me the distance from that place where I'm go- about to drive, and stuff like that. So it actually knows stuff about me that I'm <laughs> pretty. scares me sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Pat, but that that's that that works to a degree because um, you've opened up yourself personally to Google and then through your personal device which is your smartphone Google is is, is basically f- suggesting things back to you personally so you've got a one-to-one relationship there with with um, well, Google Now or a machine and, and you mm. whereas if we're thinking about the you know, in the household environment, going back to um, you know, maybe an idea of your coffee table or the volume or changing TV channel things, we're in a context there which which is going to be incredibly challenging to solve. Um, even if we've got the machine to have a relationship with me personally, it, un- it understands my gestures, it understands um, the inflection in my voice when I shout a command out or whatever um, you know pattern we've we've come across to to control it how how is it going to be able to understand the context of the home how is it going to be oh. able to understand, understand when i'm the one who can control the volume not my wife or, or which one of us is it going to win <laughs> when can my kids control the volume when when do i think it's too loud and i i need to say no right this has got to be this loud and no higher how does the compute? how does the machine understand what's going on in the family and and you know i suppose understand when it, who it should listen to and when and how and, and, and when to change that again, when time moves on and we, when it's, you know, the argument's over or now it's the next day. and they, There's so many very complex interactions there between man and machine or families and machine. that I, I don't know how you solve that.
0: Yeah. Um, I think then we have to start thinking about... So so I think you've got to break it down into different categories of problems. So the first category is would be... Um, having too many inputs and clashing inputs. So, you know, and knowing when to m- measure what someone's doing and when to ignore them. I think that's the, the first kind of category of problem. Then the second category is one of, of, of the social um, context, because, um, as you said, it's not always, you know, not everyone always has equal rights <laughs> to to control, <laughs> i.e., the, the passengers on a plane should not be allowed to, to interact with the navigation system. <laughs> um, so so um, there needs to be some kind of protocols around who gets access to what. And, and, and you know, going back to family, that's like your, that's like your parental controls, really. Um, but in a shared house, mm. then it's not quite as clear. You know, everyone should theoretically have equal, equal rights. Um, but 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 the, the first problem needs to be solved is what happens when two people are trying to do two different things at the same time, maybe with two different systems, or maybe with the same system and contradicting. Who gets priority and how does it interpret those those things? And and I think that's where we might get to um, this this kind of idea that I I've, I've also talked about over the years, which is um, embedded <laughs> embedded systems in the body. So. Um, rather than having these very loosely targeted or area-targeted kind of sensors, which would be very easy to confuse, um, if you have one that's done at a very individual level, really kind of um, monitoring your your body as an individual and, and not really the space around you, then you could have quite distinct ways of understanding who wants to do what. Now... How that would work, I mean, there are lots of technologies out there starting to do this. So there's, um, you know, we have uh, those, those circuits that you can kind of just apply to your skin as, as transfers. You have um, things that might be able to track your, the, the movement of your, of your eye and, and project kind of information directly into your eye through some kind of contact lens. Um, they may be even things that you, um, you know, kind of can read your... You know, we have these kind of thought reading, alpha wave reading kind of devices. So all of these things might eventually give us a truly distributed interface that isn't just about our fingers and eyes and a, and a, and a piece of metal and, and glass, but it might be something that's um, orchestrating all these different sensors and capturing all this different information about us in, in constantly and, and feeding that in. Um, so I, I think that's, that's one possible future but but um probably five to ten years down the line
2: i'm thinking the this so the system actually needs to learn we always talk about when we install new technology in our homes but the system then needs to learn who we are so in the situation james where it doesn't know which family member it should listen to now it should should perhaps be able to ask you I don't know what to do in this situation. When it comes up again, what what do you want me to do? So it needs to be learning all the time. So it needs to be have an AI. Uh, and that's, that's where we have to be headed if, if if we want to realize this in the sense that we're talking mm-hmm. about now.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think um, when you come to embedded devices, they'll be able to sense. Maybe, oh, they'll be able to understand when I'm maybe anxious, when I'm when I'm angry, when I'm I don't know, when I'm drunk. I don't know. There's lots of different. Um, it can know a lot more about about me than no, no more drunk at the time. texting. So I suppose no.
0: <laughs> it'll stop you from drunk texting. By default, yes, yes, <laughs> well, it, it,
1: it, it, exactly. You could do that, or, or even worse. But um, but that that maybe is part of the AI to to help decide or control the situation. That um, the, the the interface will understand the con. We have to learn more about the context because of all the data points, not just the the commands.
0: So so then the the, the other real problem that I think we have, and this is a much more kind of near near term problem, is if any, right now, we have systems that they could be, you could, they are annoying in a lot of ways, but they're actually quite efficient if you think about them. Um, um, the actual amount of effort we need to put in to send a text message is pretty low, really. Now, if I compare that to actually the reality now of, of doing a voice to text kind of thing, it's, it's, it's actually more effort to do the voice to, to, to do a, a kind of voice text thing because one you have to, you have to turn it on and then two you have to redo it three times because it doesn't understand what you're saying and then and then three um, you're, you're kind of having to you've got this social work load uh, I'm expressing this right. Um, you have to be in an environment
2: well, where you don't feel like an idiot. Yes,
0: exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's a cost to you to actually do that in a... In a public place, it's kind of like you feel like a like an idiot, a bit of an idiot. Yeah. Um, although that's we me to me, nor- me
2: talking into my Apple Watch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Although we seem yeah. to, but it's, it, this is purely a um, this might be a temporary thing because we certainly got over talking on our Bluetooth headsets in public. Now now, mm. now we can all pretend to be you know um, you know street lunatics <laughs> mm. um, because you can't tell whether someone yeah. is actually talking to themselves or someone else. But but I think those three.
1: Things- no, normally it has been the case that it's transitionary. It's the same. It's been the same every single time. I've I've been an early adopter of something, then you get mocked at first, and then within a few years, everyone's kind of you know doing the same thing. I remember this with the mobile telephones in the 90s. I was the only one in like 95, 96 who carried a mobile phone with them. My friends thought this was hilarious and just used to you know bully me all the time. But as soon as the pubs closed and we needed a taxi, I was really, really popular, and they were very, very pleased that I had the mobile phone. And only a couple of years before, they all had them as well.
0: So, so, so the social stigma or, or social cost. Um, um, I, what is it? What does it refer to? You? Yeah, social deviance, I think, because um, if you're not, if you're being, if you're doing something mm, weird, yes. not the same as anyone else, then you're being social deviant. That, that's a cost. Then there's the um, actual physical effort, so that's a cost as well. Um, uh, and then there's the non-routine bit of it. It's like, um, it's, not just, it's not just the physical effort of doing it, it's, the, it's you having to learn how this new thing works. So I think all of these things are going to be inhibitors for the take-up of this technology. I don't think they're like permanent or long-term inhibitors, I think they're short-term. But we definitely need to think about how, how we overcome them. Because if a system, you know, like Leap Motion, for instance, great technology, but people are not using it. Um, you could say the same, actually, for, 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 the, for the motion sensing game systems. They're, they're, a lot of them are being, being kind of deprioritized now by, by um, Sony and, and Microsoft. Because actually, people aren't that in, are not as into them as they thought they would be. So it's telling us something, and a lot of people are saying, oh, this gesture-based control system is hugely difficult, very problematic, people don't like it, um, people aren't using it. You know, the, 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 There's something very important there for us to understand and figure out.
1: Mm. And then when it comes to pro gamers, the amount of commands they can issue, um, in like eSports, when they're, they're sat there and they're doing so many keyboard movements a, a second, that to do that gesture based, yeah, I can understand it's a challenge because you, you just, we're, we're quite a way off, I think, from being as accurate as they are using a keyboard controlled mouse to, to control games.
0: So, a simple um, analogy, or, or actually a, sto- a kind of uh, example, which I think both shows the problem and the possible solution is if you remember the, um, uh, the alphanumeric key- keypads we used to have on phones. Um, yeah. They, we actually lost something really important when we moved to touchscreen, which is the our ability to text without looking at the device. If you were, if you lo- if you practiced, and we all probably were able to do this, you knew, you started to learn the layout of the keys, so you could actually type without looking at the keypad um, or or the phone. You, you absolutely can't do that with a touchscreen. <laughs> because there's no way you can learn the position of, of the qwerty because it's too small and you know it just doesn't work. There's no tactile um, element to it. So um, so what what why this is a, you know why this is the pitfall is that is that we're um, you know the more we move away from these um, kind of learnt methods the more difficult it becomes to use systems. But the, what, what was really fantastic about that, that pocket texting idea where you could, you know, literally you could, you could kind of text someone while your phone's in your pocket still, um, that, that tells us that, that we're actually quite good at learning, memorizing quite detailed and complex movements. Muscle memory um, is, is a really powerful thing. And if we can somehow take advantage of that with these, New types of interfaces, then I think we're onto something. Um, I'm not sure how we do it though.
2: It's time to retire the QWERTY keyboard, maybe, and uh, let us do type in another way. Uh there, yeah. There's been an experimentation with that, of course. We actually type in the air with doing different finger signals, uh, but there's a huge step involved in in getting there. I think.
1: Oh, especially when you consider the fact that. You know the generation coming up now—the the kind of the, the generation that doesn't remember a time before the internet—they also don't remember a time before qwerty interface, at least in Western um, um, language um, new, alphanumeric um, um, alphabets. Um, so, so that's also a big transition for them because they'd, they'd have to start again completely with input.
0: Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing a lot of those. I mean, this has been around for thirty odd years, where these kind of very much smaller keyboards that you could operate with one hand that kind of combined QWERTY with some other stuff, and, but they were way too hard to learn. Um, so I, I don't know, there, there's, um, there's something definitely important around, around our ability to learn physical actions really well, but um, being able to kind of create a universal language of what those things mean, I think is, is hugely mm-hmm. challenging. And, and may even yeah. Yeah. end up killing the whole gesture-based interface, stone dead. <laughs> mm,
1: I think you could be right there. That is, um, it's a big leap for us to take. Even if the technology can do it, can we?
0: Yes. Or, or do we want to? Because you can learn anything, of course. You can learn how to mm. fly yeah. fly a space shuttle. <laughs> yeah. But is it worth it? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah. So
2: what we're saying now is that the gesture-based uh, interfaces are really difficult to get people to use, and the voice-controlled interfaces are really difficult to get people to use. So uh, what's the deal with Siri UI?
0: <laughs> yeah, so, um, so actually, it's just a fantasy. No, um, I, 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 think that, that, um, I think that actually in the end, it's going to bec- become a combination of many, many things. We're never going to mm. lose the screen. This is, mm. this is really the, the heart of the, the kind of provocation that I've put forward is that actually we're going to end up with more and more screens. We're going to end up with screens on everything.
1: And more, and more, that, uh, yeah, more and more things that become screens, I guess. Yes,
0: exactly. With, with, with advances in, in, in flexible OLED technology and, and smart materials and so on, um, uh, the idea that in the future all our buildings will be just grey and colourless because they'll all have projection, or or they'll all be projecting stuff personalized to you, so you'll see the city that you want to see, or not that you want to see, that the advertisers want you to see. Um, So, um, you know, we're not going to lose these screens. There'll be screens everywhere. Um, But if we can complement them with other modes of interaction, then I think we can vastly speed up the the things that we find annoying and time consuming and boring, and spend more time um, enjoying the stuff we do want to do, such as talking to people and sending them pictures and and so on, rather than fiddling around with interfaces, because no one wants to interact with an interface. No one says, "I really," you know, they want to do the thing that they want to do, but the interface is just this kind of annoyance in the way. So we can take away a lot of the kind of um, utility type of stuff and just allows us to focus on the experience side. Then I think and that's where I think zero UI can can really work, through a combination of automating things, through kind of, you know, shortcut cutting a lot of the you know, functional stuff, um, so that you don't need to spend time thinking about it. I, I think that's where it can can be really yeah. useful.
2: And using, using the data to make you make smart selections for you, yeah. smart default selections. I have an example from yesterday when James and I were going to the same meeting, but we were approaching it from different directions, and I asked him on Google yeah. Hangout, where are you? And, of course, on Google Hangout, then James gets uh, a button for sharing his location. So instead of having to share his location by typing it, he just pushes a button, and I get a map of where he actually is. Because Google, Google, Google Hangouts knew I was asking it. Yeah. yeah. So I mean more and more stuff like that, using data to to give me intelligent suggestions that I don't have to process uh, on my own and don't have to use brain power to actually or any more effort to actually input that data. That would be exactly. I
1: I actually wonder. I actually think that maybe the whole robot car thing um, might be the thing that helps us in all this because there we're seeing. I mean, it's been wonderful following um, the amount of. Um, things that they've learned about driving and cars mm. um, so far Google alone with their project of, of collecting all this data and seeing what happens and, um, and I think it's incredibly exciting to see how they're, they're using that, that knowledge to, to drive cars better um, but they also have the whole you know, zero UI thing comes into, into that in so many ways and, and con, all the things we've been talking about with context, understanding, mm-hmm. AI. And so, so maybe, maybe the robot cars, and the battery, the battery side of things as well that we mentioned. There's a lot of things that we talked about that all, all kind of gather together inside the um, driverless cars. The very, mm, true. very true.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and, and there we're talking about, um, although it's incredibly complex, <laughs> of course, navigating, navigating through... Um, Across, you know, along a road with all kinds of things that could happen. It's still, it's actually a, a pretty self-contained experience. We know that you want to go from somewhere to somewhere else. Um, so, so solving that problem for a zero UI it, it is a lot easier than thinking, okay, I'm now in a city and I could do anything I want. And how, how do I have mm-hmm. these interfaces that will el- enable me to? shop, and to talk to people, and to get on public transport, and to, um, I don't know, um, a book of, a cinema ticket, uh, and, you know, with, that, that, that makes it all kind of totally uh, intru- unintrusive and, and invisible. I think, I think that'll be the next level of challenge to solve, and, and, and I think it'll make our lives a lot, a lot better, ultimately. You know, I, I don't want to have to fiddle around with endless of poorly functioning apps and websites to just get my stuff done you know i want it to be as easy as what it used to be like when you'd go up to a cinema um ticket you know the window and, and just ask for for a ticket um and it'd be done but I, obviously i don't want to have to be in the cinema to do that i want to be able to just do that anywhere or 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 any of these other examples so um yeah i think uh i think we've got we've got some work to do
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's um and it's going to be really exciting. Um you know, going forward with this. It's not going to get any more boring, is it? Mm. What no, does it mean for us, for us as designers, though? Because, I,
2: I mean, you're, you're quoted as saying, uh, Andy, that we have to become experts in science, biology, oh. and psychology <laughs> to create these devices. And uh, So what do we have to do now? Because people are listening, are, are thinking, yeah. okay, so what do I have to learn?
0: <laughs> I was just trying to freak people out with that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but the, you know, what I'm implying, of course, is that, is that the, um, the disciplines that will have to come together, we're not going to have to experts. in and mean, it would be impossible to, but we have to take... We have to become aware of those disciplines and maybe bring other people into the design process who who are experts in them. So that, um, you know, creating an interface that responds to your mood, that's a really difficult thing. <laughs> you know, we don't... You know, what are, the, what are the outward signs of your mood? They're actually really hard to interpret because um, the physical signs could be the same... For anxiety as for excitement, you know, heart rate or mm. dilation of you know adrenaline or whatever. So understanding you know on a biological level what someone is experiencing is really quite hard. Some people are saying that until you can actually directly interface with the brain, you don't you'll never really understand from from the physion, physiological um, kind of signs mm. um, because it's they're too crude and and whatever. So you know these kinds of things. You know, as a designer, you can't. You know, you're not. You're not a. You're not a biologist, and you're not a psychologist. Although you, you might have some some affinity for psychology, um, and you're not. And you're not going to be a. Um, you know, a structural engineer or or a um, data scientist, but figuring out how you work as a designer, we're we're uniquely positioned to actually listen to these people and take. St- really important lessons from them, and then recontextualize them as a solution to a design problem. I think that's what designers have always done, is that we're kind of... Our mastery, as well as being perhaps in a certain, a certain craft, is in being able to um, correlate different things together. At least the good designers are good at that. So I, I think that's where, where you'll have to get increasingly good at is, is looking at the world in a broader way and, and trying to uh, apply learnings that other people have got to your, your, your discipline.
2: Yeah. Nice. I think that's a good note to end on. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Thank you.
0: Um, Thanks so much right. for talking to us, Andy. <laughs> Great. Yeah, no, it was, I, it was, I, it was, Andy, it was a pleasure could have probably gone on for another hour, but I've got to run in a minute. Um, I know. I could have gone gone on all
1: day as well. It's an excellent um, subject to talk about. Mm. Thanks very much for taking the time to to chat to us, Andy.
0: Okay. Bye, guys.
2: Okay. Um, uh, I don't know if we've gotten a whole lot closer to zooming in on what zero UI really is. It seems to me that it's about reducing friction in interfaces, which really always has been a big theme of user interface design. Uh, And if the phrase itself really is mainly a provocation, then it, for me, probably means that if we can take away all that which is doing us a disservice in the interface, then we are approaching zero UI because we have less UI. Hmm
1: yeah i i think um i don't know if we've solved anything in the chat but we've definitely touched upon and highlighted a lot of interesting aspects of the work that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be coming up against us in this um this near future um and and in particular that we how we we know that the context is important um and and that's gonna be even ever more so um now in a world that's oh okay we're gonna we could call it zero i for the sake of continuality in this episode of the show. But um, um, the context is absolutely crucial. Like you, we were talking about in the show, uh, in the interview, about artificial artificial intelligence. So not only are we moving away maybe from an interface on a device, um, the, we're creating interface hubs. More things are becoming screens. More things need... Um, artificial intelligence or algorithms, um, and understanding of our context and reading in signals from us and our environment in order to provide, um, a, a, a less troublesome way of interacting with machines.
2: Right. So, in some sense, for Siri UI to happen, interfaces have to become almost even more complex or more intelligent, like you're saying. Yeah.
1: The, 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 the kind of piping behind the scenes needs to become more complex in order to reduce what we have um, on the visual or tactile facing side.
2: And that's actually a common notion in UX. Where should the complexity lie? And uh, it should, of course, lie within the system and not facing the user. Yeah,
1: and we're limited. Yeah, we're we're, we're limited by the data that we have uh, at our fingertips from those um, situations and interfaces.
2: I really enjoyed that chat with Andy. It, it's fun that in our interviews we always have some sort of expectation about what we'll be talking about, but we always end up taking on many more broad subjects than we first anticipated, I think. I like that about our interviews.
1: Yeah, we did. We we definitely um, touched upon more subjects and, and angles on this than than even i'd realize we could and did after our first chat
2: yeah <laughs> um right so if you're interested in seeing the links uh associated with this episode head on over to uxpodcast.com as per usual and uh, maybe share the show with your friends as well
1: um yes all the links will be on the website and um, you can also sign up for our backstage mailing list there which i recommend you do because um they're lovely little cozy emails that uh, we send out um every now and then and in connection with new episodes um, and one of the emails I sent out recently was re- well, reminding everyone or pointing out to everyone that we're going to have a listener phone-in in December, on December the 11th. Um, w- the times for that um, you can find on uxpodcast.com slash live, so you can put it into your calendars. It's um, if, if you want to know, it's 2 o'clock Central European time, so you can, you can Google that and work out what it is in your time zone.
2: And really, don't miss that opportunity to take part in our live show. You can listen live, but you can also talk to us, which would be awesome.
1: Both me and Per and Anway. That's right. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.